Hello, and welcome on in to another episode of Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. Before we get into it today, I want to encourage you to rate and review the show if you hadn't already. Also, check out my free Substack, where I write about stuff simultaneously more broad and more niche than this show. My latest is called The Looming End of College Football's Warlord Era. It's about how college football has been dominated by conferences and television networks for almost 40 years, and how that era is coming to a certain end leading the oldest form of American football into an uncertain future. But today, I'm finally delivering on my promise to talk about muscular Christianity, which was the driving philosophical movement behind the development of football. And not just American football. All of football. We'll get into it, though. I'm happy to be here, and of course, very happy to have you here as well. To me, the term muscular Christianity sounds a lot like the title of a spiritual self-help book, or maybe some influencers somewhat more overtly religious reskin a CrossFit, but that's not what it is at all. It's a somewhat outdated but still deeply influential renegotiation of Christianity's relationship body, and its origins lay in Europe in the late 18th century. You see, throughout the medieval and early modern periods, the only particularly influential and pervasive Christian thoughts about the body revolved around the practice of asceticism which is the ritual or religious denial of the desires and even basic functions of the human body. This can range from more familiar things like certain sexual or dietary prohibitions to more extreme fasting, all the way to hermits living in a cave in the wilderness, which was a popular attraction for pilgrims throughout the Christian recently. But that began to change during the Enlightenment, along with a lot of other things. The Enlightenment introduced ideas of perpetual improvement, both of the individual and of society, and the evolution of mercantilism into capitalism as the dominant mode of production started society along a path of valuing individual achievement over inherited connections to a social hierarchy. In other words, the Enlightenment introduced the concept of meritocracy and everything that goes along with it. Muscular Christianity emerged in this environment. It began pretty vaguely, This was a time before most organized sports, really only aristocratic activities like horse racing and polo, existed in something like the forms we'd recognize today. But once the belief in the value of athletic achievement had settled in among people with influence, organized sports was soon to follow. People with influence like, say, Thomas Hughes. Hughes is best remembered today for his semi-autobiographical novel Tom Brown's School Days, which was set at the rugby school where Hughes once attended. But throughout the 19th century, he was an influential figure in English politics and society in general, actually, especially as a reformer of the Christian socialist movement. He was immensely important in the spread of universal primary education throughout the United Kingdom and in early labor law. But his contribution to Musk was nothing less than establishing an identifiable set of principles for what had been until that time just sort of a vague cultural trend. Those principles were, one, man's body is given to him by God. Two, it must be trained. Three, it must be brought into subjection, in other words, discipline. Four, it must be used for the protection of the weak. Five, it must be used for the advancement of all righteous causes. And six, it must be used for the subduing of the earth, which is given by God to the children of men. His words, not mine. While muscular Christianity never organized, these principles proved popular on both sides of the Atlantic and with both Protestants and Catholics, which was somewhat rare in those days. 
it became a load-bearing philosophy at many of the elite British private schools, like for example the rugby school, to which football's deepest roots can be traced. But in the United States, its greatest impact was among the universities and in the formation of athletic clubs. As we've discussed before, athletic clubs were immensely influential in carrying different forms of football out into the broader United States, often well ahead of its codification back in the Northeast. Most of those clubs are gone today, but one listeners might be familiar with is the YMCA. The Young Men's Christian Association is, to this day, an organization dedicated explicitly to the principles of muscular Christianity, and it still operates all across the world. But while they became the foundation of the club system that grew up in England and in much of the rest of the world, football among the athletic clubs faded in the United States, YMCA football included. If you go back and look at the early schedules in the first decade or two of widespread American football, you'll see such and such city YMCA teams all over the place. But by the first decade of the 20th century, they were more or less gone. It came to belong to the schools and the schools further iterated upon the sport that muscular Christianity had given them, largely under the influence of men like Walter Camp, but developing an approach that they called scientific football. Scientific football referred to a desire to remove as many elements of chance as possible from the sport, and also to de-emphasize the importance of individual excellence in favor of team excellence. We've talked about this before. It's the origin of the switch from the rugby-style scrum to the modern line of scrimmage, which in the thinking of the muscular Christian reduced the role of chance in deciding possession. It's also the reason that kicking for goals, or later points, was slowly de-emphasized down to the almost vestigial role it has in modern football, as kicking was understood to be an individual skill. You might be thinking, but wait, what about quarterbacks? Isn't that a uniquely individual player with responsibilities and skills unlike any other anywhere in the world in any sport? And if you were thinking that specific thought in that exact way, you were correct. Congratulations. I always knew my listeners were geniuses. Quarterbacks are weird and unique in global sports. But don't worry, it's not because the early architects of the game were hypocrites or just forgot. It's because quarterbacks didn't really exist until the 1920s at least not in the form we usually imagine. And by that time, the explicit influence of muscular Christianity had largely faded into the background. The influence of muscular Christianity wasn't just in the philosophy of the game, though. It was felt all over the emerging culture of the sport, as well as the politics that grew up around it. You have to remember that this period, the 1880s and 90s, is also the beginning of the United States as a globe-trotting military power. Up to this point, it had largely remained on its own continent. But the 19th century concluded with the Spanish-American War, and in the build-up to that first show of power on the world stage, much of the American social elite felt it was vital to develop a generation of young men capable of pursuing empire. Football seemed uniquely suited to the purpose. The opposing forces were arrayed in battle lines, after all, which was still the standard practice for military engagements at the time. While it was relatively new on the scene, it was a collision sport, requiring strength, speed, and physical courage of a completely different magnitude than the second most popular American sport of the era, baseball. And unlike the most most popular sport of the era, boxing, it was a team sport, and what's military conquest if not a team exercise. 
This is way oversimplified, of course, but look, I try to keep these things under 15 minutes so we don't have time to drag out the full implications of the decline of the Spanish Empire and the perceived advantages of an independent Cuba and the way those political situations were metabolized by American masculinity at the turn of the 20th century. Furthermore, I'm just a character in a game on your phone. I'm not qualified. But these were currents in the air at the time, and they were deeply influential on football. Ultimately, when it came time, they helped save football from complete extinction. You see, as a collision sport, and in an era 100 years before seatbelts were made mandatory throughout the country, early football was dangerous. We can talk about the risks of playing football today, and they are, of course, very real and potentially quite harmful in the long run, but the scale of the risk was far, far higher once upon a time than it is today. It doesn't always seem like it, but the risk of CTE in American football actually takes a backseat to hockey and rugby, among other popular team sports around the world. In the early days, young men playing American football regularly died, dozens a year. Never mind the catastrophic injuries and double never mind long-term consequences like CTE. There was a strong push to outright ban football in the United States, which is a laughable idea in today's America, but at the time, things like freedom of speech and association and so on were still very much being worked out. But if they banned football, wherefore the development of the next generation of manly American Christians to march forward into the future and be uh, manly American and Christian? Don't worry. Muscular Christianity still has one last disciple to save its chosen sport, President Teddy Roosevelt. You see, concerns had been growing about the violence of football for years. Many West Coast universities like Stanford, California, USC, and others would eventually drop football for a little while in favor of rugby union, which because it disallowed blocking was at the time not nearly as violent. Teddy Roosevelt wasn't against football at all, though. As an adherent of muscular Christianity and a firm believer in America's future as a global power, he in fact believed very strongly in football's pride of place in American culture and wanted to preserve it. But he was a politician. And following the death of Georgia fullback Richard Gammon in 1897, calls to end the game had become as regular in the papers as was any coverage of the results of the game. Teddy Roosevelt, a man so good at marketing, his own PR still very much works to this day, knew a PR crisis when he saw one. So he began publicly threatening to join the chorus calling for the end of football. This wasn't something he had the authority to do, but it would not have helped. In private, though, he invited representatives from the big football schools of the Northeast to the White House to discuss the game's future. Out of those meetings, in part at least, came the end of mass formations like the Flying Wedge, and eventually, the full legalization of the forward pass. After the First World War, the influence of muscular Christianity receded, especially in Europe. It was seen, probably correctly, as having contributed to the rabid nationalism that sent Europe over the edge and into hell. It had left its mark as it's arguably the key touch point for a lot of modern anxiety around the state of masculinity at any given time, but the association with war was simply too much after the tragedy of a real one. And not even the United States was exempt. The U.S. famously marches to the beat of a different drum when it comes to culture, and nowhere more so than in the area and arena of, of religion. 
But the collapse of the international movement after the war was so thorough that muscular Christianity withered in America as well. Parts of it were metabolized in American Protestantism here and there. But the term was largely lost, and its preoccupation with scientific football ceased to hang over the development of the American game as a result. And that's our show. Remember to rate and review if you haven't already. And if you have, feel free to hit me up at Dogs and Autumn on Twitter and TikTok. One word. Also, remember to check out the Substack, dogsandautumn.substack.com. It'll be in the show notes. Till next time, take care and have fun.